a good set of relationships, friends, family, uh, primary love relationship. It does so much to support everything else in life. It can even, it can even compensate for stuff like you know crappy diet or or shitty job. That's it. We prefer that you tune in everything in your life, but this is the major task. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, and I am back after a little bit of a hiatus. It's been quite a hectic time, but we have uh, recorded many episodes that we're now getting finalized for production. I had a lot of technical challenges, including loss of all my data on the computer without a backup for the last few weeks, uh, some technical challenges with our recording platform getting acquired, and then being in motion an awful lot. So here we are back. And we're back with a pretty big topic, uh, which is the laws of love, the rules of love. I think that many of our biggest joys and our biggest pains come in intimate relationship. It really is our spiritual laboratory. I remember once hearing that love is like a rock tumbler. You put in rough stones and they tumble and tumble and tumble and they rub against each other and they come out polished and gem-like and radiant. So hopefully they come out that way and not shattered to bits. I really love what the teacher Ramdas says about relationships. I'm going to read a little bit from his work. The image I always had when performing a wedding was the image of a triangle, one in which there are two partners and a third force. The third force is that which emerges out of the interaction of these two partners. It is the shared awareness that lies behind the two of them. They are in this yoga of relationship and have come together as one in order to find the shared awareness that exists behind them, allowing them to then dance as two so that the two-ness brings them into one and the oneness dances as two. It's a kind of vibrating relationship so that both people are separate and yet they are not separate. But often we come into a relationship very much identified with our needs at some level or the other. I need security. I need refuge. I need friendship. We come together because we fulfill each other's needs at some level. And the problem is that when you identify with that, those needs, you always stay at that level where the other person is her or him that is satisfying the need. And it really only gets extraordinarily beautiful when it becomes us and then goes behind the us and becomes one. He continues, I think in relationships, you create an environment with your own work on yourself, which you offer to another human being to use to grow in the way they need to grow. Parents are environments for their children, and lovers are an environment for their partner. So what kind of environment do you want to be? Or what kind of environment would you like to invite and create around you? You know, there are a lot of people in the dating pool right now. And even if you're not in the dating pool, you're often in the dating pool for friendships or finding a job. And a lot of those dynamics are the same. A good relationship strengthens your happy life and a bad relationship can be a complete energy drain and destroy it. So it would be a wonderful thing to get that part of our lives right. Today, I have the joy of introducing you to a longtime friend of mine, Dr. Victor. I met Dr. Victor in 2001 at a yoga teacher training with Baron Baptiste in Costa Rica. And we bonded quickly over our shared love of language 
And during that retreat, we took a little bit of an aside and he was kind enough to give me a session, a hypnotherapy session to help me deal with a particularly uh, terrifying relationship situation in my life at the time. And it worked. I, I didn't know that I was a hypnotherapy candidate, but I was certainly suggestible enough that it made a very big difference in my life. And when he wrote his book, The Tao of Dating, the number one best-selling dating book on Amazon for a very long time, he asked me to contribute a piece to it called Love Your Body Now, which is in a way one of the foundational texts for what became Rosebud Woman and our body love course and our whole message of you being a seed that can't grow into anything less than what it's supposed to be, which I think we might talk about in this podcast again. He has a brand new book out called The Five Hidden Love Questions, Radically Simple Strategies to Date Smarter, Own Your Power, and Flourish. It's really written for women, but I have to say, I don't think the answers are much different for men. And it's drawn off of both his significant amount of research, his voracious reading, and from more than 5,000 letters from readers asking for advice about love and relationships. So I start by asking him why, as a happiness engineer, as an MD, he chose to focus his life's work and career so much on love and relationships and helping people find the kind of relationships and partners they are looking for. When I went back to uh, Harvard as a pre-med advisor for undergraduates, uh, I was having meals with these kids and spending time with them and a lot of the conversation revolved around dating and how little of it existed on this college campus, where I remind you, everybody's single. They're eating three meals a day together. They live together, like above, below, left, right. There are other single people. And every semester, these folks need to get one date for a formal. And that was like a major ordeal. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, you give these people a textbook on completely useless nonsense, like say organic chemistry, and they'll learn it and they'll ace the test and do really well. But this thing, which is the cornerstone of our existence, I mean, as far as anyone can tell, life is all about making more life. And uh, they had no clue. And then I realized, oh, they just need a textbook. So uh, I took it upon myself to write this textbook and the circumstances were unusual. I probably would have continued my corporate biotech career if I had not worked for a certain company called McMisery and Company. And uh, and basically, I saw another friend write books in this genre, and I thought, you know what? I think I can do this too. So that's how it all got started. And of course, the big realization was that I was one of those students who had no clue. And if I had a textbook that told me, this is how things are meant to be done. This is how you establish a relationship with another person. This is how you flirt. This is how you get out of relationship gracefully. If I had those skills, I would have been much better off. And also so much research about health and wellness and longevity points to relationships being the cornerstone of long-term health, happiness, basically everything. So 
the biggest one being the Harvard Harvard Grand Study, the adult development, which is now in its uh, 79th, 80th year, I believe. And these kids were tracked. This is the same class uh, from class of 1929 to 1933. John F. Kennedy was in there. Norman Mailer was in there. John Updike was in there. And these folks were tracked up to the present day. Some of them are still alive and still being tracked. And that's what they found. Like the last director of the program, George Valen, he said, happiness equals love, full stop. So I call the overall work that I do happiness engineering. And this is a big, big part of it because a good set of relationships, friends, family, uh, primary love relationship, it does so much to support everything else in life. Even It can even compensate for stuff like you know crappy diet or or shitty job. Uh, that said, we prefer that you tune in everything in your life, but this is the major task. And also being around all these highly accomplished people in places like um, Harvard, Cambridge, McKinsey, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. I just saw people who were nominally successful, but actually miserable. Their health was in disarray. They weren't sleeping right. They were you know, going into their third divorce. And I'm thinking, if this is success, then maybe I don't want any of that. So how do we redefine success and say that you know, in this country in particular, so much uh, of the ethos is about work, our, our relationships supporting our work, where the natural order of things should be that our work supports our relationships. So that's a little intro of how I got into all this and, uh, and the bigger questions of, of happiness and existence. I mean, I love that. The energy leaks that come from a bad relationship, like it'll derail everything. And then there's that sense of when it's good, being really able to drop in and deeply rest and play and explore. And that also fuels everything in your life. So I'm grateful that you decided to do that and not work for whatever that McMisery thing was. I, I won't mention their names. We still have friends there. Which shall remain nameless. So you you get this impulse, you see the need, happiness engineering meets relationships targeted at people who are otherwise very, very competent and theoretically successful, sort of upending the relationship work paradigm. And then you embark on writing your first book, The Tao of Dating. And that was 14 years ago. What was that like to publish that? It had a very different angle than other books on the market at the time. That book is based on a lot of Eastern wisdom, hence the word Tao in there. So I'm a big fan of of Taoism and Buddhism and yoga philosophy and all this uh, stuff that comes out of the East that's been tested for a couple of thousand years in terms of how to live well. And combining that with the modern science of neuroscience and uh, social science and and relationship science and to give people a roadmap, so that manual, that guide for, hey, your goal is to have a nurturing relationship uh, that is a catalyst to your growth and happiness and well-being. Here's the formula. Here's the recipe. So uh, it's got the the philosophy of it and also the roadmap and the actual stuff you want to do, the you know, how do you want to arrange a date? What do you want to say on a date? What kind of questions do you want to ask? Uh, so that's a very nuts and bolts book on top of being about the philosophy of the kind of relationship you want and the whole idea of uh, the yin and the yang, the masculine and the feminine energy, and how to bring it into the whole courtship process in a way that you get the outcome that is fulfilling for you. So it was about fulfillment 
based dating. That's kind of the way it was different from a lot of other uh, books there. And the idea is uh, fulfillment is a feeling. It's not a person. And so much of the dating advice at that time and even today is like, oh, how do I get the guy? How do I get the girl? And what if you got the guy and it was the wrong guy and he made your life miserable? And I've seen so many of that happen. And you know, divorce rate in this country hovers between 40 and 50%. So that's a coin flip pretty common that people end up with the wrong person. So let's go for fulfillment. What is it that actually makes you feel great and flourish? Uh, that's what I define. Yeah. I think in that book, I really was impressed by the amount of effort into authenticity that you were inviting people to be their full self, to care for themselves, to investigate the things that they love, what they're about so that when they meet someone, they're coming from an authentic position. And then with more likelihood to meet a mate that is a fit. And I think that's a that's a beautiful focus. You're not changing yourself to fit the market, you know? You're actually being yourself and inviting someone to you that matches you. Yeah, it's all about fit and that's a big part of what I talk about in this new book, which is if it doesn't work out with someone by definition it means it was not a good fit. And <laughs> if you go to a store and yeah. you find a sweater that's not your size, do you do you rail at the sweater and say, oh, this awful sweater? Or do you get angry at your body and say, why won't this body fill in the sweater? Or you just say, you know, just go find a sweater that fits. There's a lot of sweaters in the world. So yeah, let's. you have a very unique, um, just a little data point for people. You are a voracious reader. Like you consume a lot of books. You're also a very discerning reader. And one of the things in looking at this new book, which we're going to jump into in a minute, was how much of the what you present is driven off of not only client stories, letters that people have written to you, but also on research. Can you talk a little bit about how you research, how you consume information, and sort of your approach to learning yourself? Great question. Thank you for the vote of confidence there. So I am very curious about how the world works, in particular, how humans work and how minds work. And so what I endeavor to do in this book is to bring my readers the best practices as they exist today in 2023 for the purposes of your growth and flourishing. And so I've been reading about 150 nonfiction books per year for the past I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. And once you have that broad a, a view of, of the literature and what people are saying, you start to notice themes. And also in my own clinical practice as a clinical hypnotherapist and behavioral change specialist and occasional coach, I see what works and what does not work. And I also have a sample size of, of the letters uh, that my readers sent to me. So around 5,000 or so. I like to joke and say it's uh, 5,150 letters. And, um, and uh, they, they reveal some statistically significant patterns for what people do and what the problems are. And so I thought, you know what? These 5,000 letters are not 5,000 questions. You, you can scrunch these down to five basic questions. And that's where this book comes from. So these these questions are kind of non-trivial. When you look at them and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, but it's actually a scrunching down of a whole bunch of data into, into their essential components in a way that you can actually use um, as opposed to you know some scattershot 5,000 different questions thrown at you. Yeah, I think 5,000 to five is a pretty good distillation. Good job. Of course, within each of those five questions, there is a lot of nuance and subchapter points. One of the core questions was, am I enough? That's a big one. So 
all 5,000 letters had that somewhere in the subtext. So, you know, somebody writes in and says, Hey, Dr. Victor, you know, I went on this date. We had a great time. We made out at the end. Guy hasn't called me in three days. What's going on? Right. And that's another version of, am I enough? Uh, or, Hey, you know, I've been dating my boyfriend for six months, but we haven't gone it on in three weeks. What's going on? It's another version. Hey, am I, am I cool enough? Am I attractive? What's going on here? So the thing to remember is that that question is always going to be happening there. We're, we are at the base. We are primates. We are hierarchical primates. And just like baboons and monkeys and all these other tree dolling creatures, we're always worried about our rank. I'd say 90% of human behavior has to do with rank and status. And so even though our survival doesn't really depend upon our rank in the tribe, I mean, you can still walk into Whole Foods and get whatever you want. Even so, we still worry about this at a very deep unconscious level, and that informs a lot of our behavior. And so when it comes to dating, if something goes wrong, the first thing that comes to mind is, am I enough? Is this as opposed to, right? If people think that they're enough and the questions would be different, they'd be like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? I'm like, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. He hasn't called me back, whatever, right? Which is an equally valid way of looking at things, right? So what I propose is to kind of get out of that cycle entirely because it's all about this thing called the ego, which is fragile and and kind of imaginary anyway, and to get in and to change the game altogether because we're never going to get rid of am I enough. It's like encoded in our DNA for 3 million years. What we can do is we can divert the energy towards a much more productive cause. And instead of asking am I enough, we can ask, ask something like, how can I be the light? How can I be somebody's answered prayer today? How can I be the person who makes the situation here even better for everybody around me? How can I be a source of appreciation? And when you do that, it just changes the entire game. So first of all, I think we should do we should do that right now. We should just say, like, imagine asking yourself the question, "Am I enough?" Mm-hmm. And see what that does in your body. Yeah, feel it. Think about it. Think about something that happened. You know, somebody said something. You know, maybe it was a backhand compliment, or at work you weren't quite appreciated, and you ask yourself, "Oh wow, am I enough?" Right? Uh, yeah, just contemplating that question is just gives me down a little bit. I feel small. I feel like I'm looking up and out and trying to get somebody's approval or reassurance. But then when I switch it to how can I be the light, which is one of the suggestions you just made and in the book too, how can I be the light or how can I be of service or how can I, you know, appreciate someone else? I suddenly bring the locus of control back to myself. And I also feel like a little delight like a delighted little fairy godmother kind of like, oh, I can go around granting boons feels a lot different. Totally. And that's exactly where it is. And this is the power that cannot be taken away from you. You can go around and give people compliments all day long. Nobody's going to stop you. You can um, say, hey, I love what you did with that presentation. Love this outfit you put together. Wow. What a meal. What a dinner party. Whatever it was, you can go around and appreciate people. And crazy thing is we forget and Think back to the last time you gave somebody a compliment. And if it was not within the last 48 hours, ask yourself why. And habit or just you know, forgot that you have this power. You have a lot of power. And this book is about reminding us of all the power that we have. In fact, that's you know, the middle part of the, of the subtitle. It says, radically simple suggestions to date smarter, own your power, and flourish. And this power is already there. You're just owning it. You're saying, hey, you know, I can be 
this agent of joy and a, and a boon to everything around me. And I'm really glad you did that little rapid implementation there because the whole strategy of the book is to get people to have an implementation practice. So um, in psychology, they call this an implementation intention. And the idea is, hey, you want to do something to change your life. It ain't going to happen unless you set a time for it, like literally put on your calendar. So I'm literally putting on people's calendars. I'm saying Mondays, we're going to call it magnanimous Mondays. And your job is going to go to go around and be the light. You're just going to give people compliments or you're going to do random acts of kindness. You're going to pay for the Starbucks coffee of the person behind you in line. You are going to, I don't know, randomly, randomly hand out I don't know, gift cards to people, whatever. The point is you already have that power and five bucks a day of, of Starbucks cards ain't going to break anybody. So you can do all of these things. And uh, if you make it your Monday identity, I call it the you know, weekday superhero identities. And if you do that for 52 Mondays in one year, something's got to shift. It's not going to be the same you by the end of the year, but not even by the end of the month. Um, of course, you're also, you also have the option to have magnanimous every day, right? Give compliments to people every day, just randomly make people happy. And what that does is it takes you from this sense of neediness, like you said, to realizing, holy cow, I am the bestower of grace. I'm making grace happen. I'm I'm giving, you know, un, unexpected, unearned blessing to everybody around me. I mean, that's basically literally godlike, you know? So well I'd like to um like to appreciate you for your deep voice <laughs> and your fluency in responding to these questions. Well thank you. Very nice, doctor. Well very kind. Oh thank you. Hmm, feel better already. Even though it's <laughs> Even though we know this is like, you know, play and mildly contrived, it still feels good. So, yeah, so, it does. So imagine what that would be like. And hey, thank you, readers, for having such discriminating taste in podcasts and choosing to listen to this podcast. You rock. <laughs> okay, it's great. Look, I grin doubled. Um, all right. If we extend and just I'm going to drop into a couple of things within different parts of the book. I don't want to give it all away. I want you guys to go get this book. It's really great. One thing you talk about is when you're doing your profile on one of these sites is moving away from features like little selling points, little shiny object selling points to assets like relationship assets. I found that to be a really nice reframe. Can you take us through some of that? Sure. So I, I had this coaching client and she was like, hey, you know, why are these guys not responding to me? You know, I'm smart, I'm pretty, I'm well-educated, you know, I'm active, I'm a great athlete. And what I was thinking was, okay, those are great features, but how does that make the guy on the other end feel? She's a great athlete. Okay. What does that do for him? Not a whole lot. actually. Or maybe fun to play with. Maybe she'd be good to be a companion, hiking, running, swimming, but if it's not over. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the thing. It's like, how do we take that from being a feature to a benefit for the person, say, reading your profile, the person who is on the other side of the dinner table? And there's a distinction made in economics about the difference between experienced goods and searchable goods, right? So when you go on these sites and you have a profile, it's just like being on Amazon. You're searching for something you're like, oh, okay, mattress, um, headphone, charger for my phone, whatever it is. And you search for it and you kind of know what you're getting and these are standardized goods and that's that. But you can't do the same with people. People are about experiencing them, right? What are you like in interaction with one another? And there's no amount of detail 
on a profile that can convey that. So it's partially why I tell people to shy away from online dating, dating apps, and get out there and meet people in person as much as possible. And the thing is, when you have all these relationship assets, it's important to present them as such, as opposed to just features, right? You want to present them as benefits to your potential partner. I'm athletic, which means that, hey, we can go out and do fun things and go hiking. Uh, you know, I'm a great cook. I can cook for us and we can share these amazing meals together. I am highly educated. This means that we can have spirited conversations and we can keep up with each other. So when you think of your benefits as as assets, as as these features that actually make somebody else feel good, it actually empowers you to go out and say, yeah, yeah, actually I am pretty cool. As opposed to just listening them on a profile and hoping that it works. I mean, I see these profiles and most of them are disasters. They're like, oh, I'm comfortable in, uh, in jeans and a ball gown. I'm like, you can wear two different kinds of clothes. Good on you. This is awesome. But how does that make your partner feel? Maybe you want to say, hey, I'm highly adaptable. I can go with you to a fancy ball or, you know, go hiking in the mountains and I'm cool with it. Right. So you want to convey what it feels like to experience you in a relationship. And that is the thing. It's just like any kind of marketing, really. You want to have some the person on the other end have a little bit of the experience of what it's like to actually be with you. How do you apply that to values? Values are huge. So uh, I talk about several ways in which people go about picking partners. And there's the terrible, which is kind of picking somebody based on your reaction to your troubled childhood, basically someone who replicates the mistreatment of your early caregivers. That's not great, right? Then you can graduate up to one level and say, okay, I'm going to have a checklist now. And this checklist is going to be all these things that really matter to me. But these checklists tend to get very long. And even after just four or five items, it tends to eliminate more than 99% of the population. And often the checklists have absolutely nothing to do with how fulfilling a relationship with that checklist is going to be, right? The thing that seems to actually work, as far as I can tell, is what I call values matching. That means figuring out what is running your life, what really matters. And to most people, this is completely hidden. So uh, there's two ways of going about figuring out your values. One is to look at a list, circle the stuff, and then say, okay, of these 10 things that I've circled, what is the one that I cannot possibly live without? And you circle it, that's number one. Then you go down the list and you have your top five and boom, now you know the operating system for your brain and your life. So you're like, oh, okay, honesty, adventure, creation, family life. Okay, this is the stuff that matters. And now you can select based on that. And when you go into a date, you can ask questions based on, okay, family life really matters. So you ask them, hey, are you interested in having family? And they're like, nah, I'm, I don't believe in marriage. I don't want to have kids. You're done. That's it. Values mismatch, not going to happen as well as it should not. Uh, the other really powerful way to figure out what your values are is what I call uh, the ouch method. And the ouch method is uh, you go back to all your breakups, and I'm assuming people who are listening to this have, have had at least one breakup, and uh, unless you're in junior high, usually true, and figure out what went wrong. Why did you have a breakup? And okay, that guy lied to me. So truth and honesty matters to you. Okay, great. Um, that person uh, disappeared on me without any notice and uh, didn't call me for three weeks. Okay. So communication is important to you. So you want to have these values. And if these sound familiar to you, it's because they're common. I mean, I'm talking about, talking from my own experience, 
uh, why things didn't work out. Oh, this one. Okay. She was great. She was an amazing partner in any, every way, but she had a problem with alcohol. Alcoholism. Okay. Being substance free. Right? That's apparently one of my values. So not being addicted to any, any substances. So uh, dependencies of that sort. So you want to make these lists and you just want to make them really short, as short as possible. And you want them to be the deal breakers mostly. And then from there on, you want to be open to what's possible. And you definitely want to get rid of certain criteria, like six feet or taller, which by the way, that one criterion eliminates 86% of North American men. So now you're just left with one in seven guys. Um, and uh, it's just, it just really handicaps your choices because you just don't know what packaging your fulfillment is going to show up in. So you want to be open to someone who fulfills these values, shares them with you. And I have actually boiled down the entire book to one sentence. You want, you want me to share that sentence with your audience? You don't feel like you're giving away the story. Yeah, of course. No, they're going to they're gonna need the rest of the book. Uh, so no, it's basically you're looking for somebody who is willing and able to have your back. Oh, yeah. Somebody who is willing and able to support you. Right? And there's two components there, willing and able. And there are people who are super able, but they're not willing just because, I don't know, they're just not that generous. And there are people who are willing, but they're not able because they're super busy. Who knows? But you don't care. You want willing and able because your job here on this planet is to give your gift to the world as best you can. You're here. You have certain talents. You're meant to be giving that gift. So what you want to do is you want to find somebody who is able to catalyze your ability to give that gift as opposed to hinder it. And you know, immediately when you have that criterion, which kinds of people are catalyzing your growth and your ability to give your gift and which kind of people are kind of like drawing your energy away, sucking your energy away and making you less uh, than you possibly could be. When you're around this one person, you feel more generous, more expansive, funnier. Your jokes are landing. This other person, you feel snarkier, smaller. You feel like you're walking on eggshells. Who you want to be around? I know a lot of people choose the the latter because it's like, oh, I'm going to make them like me. I'm going to work harder now. No, stop that. You got more important things to do. That's the base, base, base criterion. Somebody who is willing and able to have your back. Yeah, I want somebody who has my back. Someone who's someone who has my back. I I like that a lot. I feel myself in these years after a couple of really big relationships, and now I would say, you know, what I'm at fifty seven now, so I've had half a dozen decent relationships and just showing up with whatever you have in a generous way, being honest, being kind, bringing what you have to the table means so much to me at this point. And that did seem to have a certain emotional maturity. So a lot of that able is seems to be more psychological. You know, am I able, do I have the skills? Have I settled my nervous system enough to be able to show up for someone else? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll talk about that, the whole notion of good neurology. And uh, I've been thinking about, okay, so what do you really want in a partner? And there's studies done, and I cite this uh, study by uh, Professor Samantha Joel, who studied 11,000 couples to figure out what really mattered. And she, one thing she did figure out is the stuff that did not matter is all those things that people prioritize on a dating app, like height, job, things you have in common, religion, just all the stuff that people think, oh yeah, this is really important, ends up being not all that important uh, to overall relationship satisfaction. So so I call my five criteria, the ASKOR criteria, A-S-K-O-R. That's what they spell. And they're all about being a good asker of questions. And 
the criteria are number one is accountability. Is this person accountable for their own behavior? Number two, self-awareness. Do they know where they stand in the world? Do they know whether they are you know, inflicting harm on someone, whether they are health, mentally healthy? Self-awareness is super huge. Number three is kindness. They've asked these surveys all over the world. And number one criterion that comes up is kindness and should not surprise you. Do you, do you want to be with somebody who is not kind? Hell no. And number four, optimism. This one is huge. You guys are going to go through a lot of stuff together and you want somebody who's an optimist because stuff's still going to happen. But when you're with an optimist, everything's just a lot easier. Uh, and finally, resilience. So resilience, does, when, when you encounter hardship, does this person bounce back? Or do they just kind of crawl under the bed and say, oh, woe is me. Okay, so resilience is huge. And again, we're traveling through life together. Somebody who's optimistic, resilient, self-aware, and accountable just makes everything a lot easier and is more likely to be someone who has your back. I love those and I vote for them all. Yes, those are all great. I would. I, I think there was another little piece inside of one of the chapters that is tied to this. Yeah. You were talking about when you're dating someone, you're learning about them, you're asking them questions, that there's a fine line between curiosity and judgment. Mm, yeah. And that there's a combination of kindness and self-awareness that's in the curiosity piece. Good, good, good. Well, this may be a good time to actually go through the five hidden love questions and and tell people what they are. You've waited long enough. You've earned it. So <laughs> uh, briefly, here are the five hidden love questions. Number one is, am I enough? And we talked about that a little bit. And I offer a few antidotes to that. The top one being change the question entirely, make it, how can I be the light? Change the game entirely. Number two is, am I buying or selling? Am I the buyer or the seller? And that makes a big, big difference because when you're the buyer, you have choice, you have power. But when you're the seller, as in when you put yourself in an ad known as a profile, then you lose a lot of power and you can only win on the terms of the person who is doing the buying. Number three is, am I safe physically and psychologically, big topic, the biggest chapter in the whole book. Uh, number four is, what do I really want? Turns out people are not clear on what they really want. And we already touched upon that a little bit. You want someone who is willing and able to have your back. In other words, what you need is a lot more important than what you want. And finally, number five is, who am I really? And that's that gets into some deep existential questions about what is the nature of this life on earth, 70 to 100 years that we get, what's the point? What's the meaning? So, but back to your question about being discerning versus being judgmental. So, question number two is about being the buyer or the seller, right? And look, if you have money in your pocket and you walk into a store, you know what you want, you have all the power. And the people in the store are at your mercy because they can't do anything except give you what you want if you want it, right? And there are social situations in which it's clear who's buying and who's selling. So you got that in a store. Yes, you are definitely the one who is doing the buying. Uh, but if you're at a job interview, then the person who is interviewing you, they're doing the buying and you're doing the selling. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. That said, there are socially ambiguous situations like courtship and dating. Who's buying and who's selling on a date? Who knows? Well, guess what? You can decide that you're going to be the buyer and then you have a lot more power because now you're doing the choosing. And the key thing to remember is you don't want to be suddenly like, it's very easy to go from the buyer stance to the, to the uh, judgmental jerk stance. And that's not what we're looking for here. 
what you're doing is you're trying to be discerning about the kind of person that you may be picking as a life partner. This is the biggest decision of your life and you should take it seriously. So you want to be asking discerning questions to figure out if there is a fit. Fit makes it non-judgmental. Is this person a good fit for me? If they're not, it's just like that sweater that doesn't fit. Hey, you know, nice sweater. Let's move on to the next rack, right? But it's kindness, but with kindness. Yeah, of course. But not allowing that to move into like meet my standards and being a judgmental person. Like we're just curious about who this being is that's sitting down to dinner with us or down to coffee or out on the hike or however we've decided to meet. Like just in inquiry, who is this person before me? And that allows you to both assess fit and be present but not be superior. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want them to mistake being a buyer for being like smug or superior, which is totally unattractive. Absolutely. I mean, I, I thank you for bringing that up because it's so easy to lapse into that. And a lot of advice books quite plainly go into that and like, oh yeah, you want to be, you want to have these rules and you want to enforce them. And the Taoist approach is much softer and it's kind of like allowing people to show you who they really are. And curiosity is super attractive. Curiosity, people want to talk about themselves all day long. So if you are genuinely curious, you will get all the information you will need to assess whether this person in front of you is a good fit for you. And I like to think that that is the purpose of dating. I don't know what people think the purpose of dating is, but to me, dating is the process of gathering accurate information about the suitability of something as a potential partner. And Okay, if that sounds super clinical and takes the fun out of it, hey, go and have some fun too. But in the meantime, let's not forget the main point of the agenda because look, I'll, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it to the end of days, your choice of partner is the most important decision you make in your life. It has the greatest bearing upon your long-term health, happiness, well-being, flourishing, giving your gift to the world. So let's make sure we get this right. And you get it right by being curious, asking good questions, and, uh, you know, you're being discerning, but I also want you to win. And by being the buyer, by assuming the stance of the buyer, you have a lot more choice and latitude in which, what's going on. Being the buyer just makes you naturally more attractive. Uh, so, and in, in game theory, it's that position of being the buyer is called a dominating strategy because it's better than any other strategy. And no matter what the other person does, you're better off being the buyer. Now, these last two questions, mm. what do you really want and who are you? Yeah. I mean, literally, those are the questions of one's entire life. If you're on a spiritual path, you know, I bet you could find a dozen books that are titled, Who Am I Really? Mm. You know, or something along those lines. It's almost an existential question. So, in the context of the letters that you got that caused you to discern those two questions of the 5,000, could yeah. you color a little bit more into Who Am I Really in this um. context? Yeah. So the who, who Am I Really chapter goes into what I call nine stories of you. And these are nine stories about how you came to be sitting here and now listening to this podcast that are incontrovertible truths. All nine of them have to be true about you. There's no way around it. And, and the idea is to get out of this notion of roles and labels and names and all these things that we think we are. And to get into a much grander vision of the self, the self with a big S, and when you have this expanded view of the world and your place in it, everything shifts, everything changes. So for example, if you are listening to this right now, um, that means that 
150,000, give or take, generations of your ancestors survived long enough to have a kid. And every single one of them made it. Think about it. 150,000 generations is a lot, right? And how many people is that? Well, okay. Two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents. It turns out in 30 generations, you get to uh, more people than there have been ever. Um, 78 to 105 billion people, depending on who you ask. So, so basically... This unending line of of ancestors is is like standing behind you right now, rooting you, saying, "Yes, you're the ultimate survivor. You go." And most people don't really think of that as some kind of accomplishment, but it's it's really quite miraculous and statistically just unbelievably unlikely, right? Uh, you were one cell that divided into two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one hundred twenty-eight, two hundred fifty-six, five hundred twelve. 1,024, 2,048, 4,096, all the way to 37 trillion. And these 37 trillion cells all cooperated last night. You were knocked out cold. Heart kept on beating. Lungs kept on breathing. Uh, you know, uh, 535 members of Congress can't get along. And uh, your, your <laughs> cells did just fine. 37 trillion of them. And day after day. I mean, your heart is beating right now with no interference from you. How crazy is that, right? So part of the purpose of this chapter is to remind people of the miraculous nature of existence, what the Buddhists call this precious incarnation and how unbelievably unlikely it is and therefore precious. And when you start to see yourself and everything around you as a miracle, right, you treat yourself differently and then you treat other people differently because everything that is, tr everything that is true about you and the 150,000 generations of surviving ancestors has to be true of everybody else too. So the world becomes this amazing, miraculous place, and it just brings a certain sense of holiness and sanctity to the whole operation, which is very different from taking 150 milliseconds to go no and swipe left on on Hinder, Bumble, or Cringe, or whatever you call those apps. Um, so <laughs> bring a little bit of that back, right? The whole idea of that, hmm, you know, I, I just life thing is pretty special. I mean, you're pretty special too, but it's not about you being special. It's about you realizing that life. this life thing is pretty phenomenal and uh, also accessing that bigger self, that bigger self, which is like the wave in the ocean, both wave and ocean and recognizing that you are part of this. And when you come from this much more expanded view of the self, then it's so much easier for you to take on the idea of being the bestower of grace being the source of magnanimous Mondays, right? Uh, you can tremendous Tuesdays. You can be the host for everybody because you're the one person who gets it. You're the one who's like, damn, free oxygen and sunlight. Pretty cool, man, right? As opposed to, mm -hmm. uh, do my, do my, does my butt look good in these pants? Or I didn't get the raise or but, that. But seriously, does, does my butt look good in these pants? <laughs> By definition. No, really, I, I think, I think it's beautiful. And, and of course, you come back right around to that first question. If you think you're the ultimate expression of your entire ancestry and a blooming part of nature, it's pretty hard to go back to am I enough as a legitimate question. Exactly. So, uh, and whatever we are now is just utterly, insanely miraculous. So uh, moving into that zone of appreciation just gives you so much more power and also enables your growth, your expansiveness, and the ability to give your gift. Because look, 
we're all super duper interconnected. So I cite the the famous study by Nick Christakis and, and James Fowler about how obesity can spread through a population to people that don't even know each other, right? So you lose weight, like the friend, uh, your friend probability of them losing weight goes up 37%, friend of a friend, 18%, somebody you don't even know, three degrees of separation away, 10%, right? You affect it, you quit smoking, same thing. All these, everything that you do propagates throughout the world. You're like a pebble dropped into a pond and just ripples out and we think, oh, it's just little old me, but no, it's not just the little old you. We are nodes in this interconnected network and we're hyper-social beings. So everything you do affects everybody else around you. So you're working on you becoming happy is the most altruistic thing you could be doing because this will affect people around you. Your people you don't even know are going to get a little spring in their step and it'll be because of you. Uh, you grow you facilitate other people's growth. There's the old saying, rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying- I'd like to put a link to that study in, the study in the show notes, you know, yeah. just so that in addition to the book, the people can read that, that full study. We talk about that occasionally as the avalanche phenomenon, that there's something called a photon avalanche, mm. where one photon triggers a certain number of photons and the light doesn't appear until like the last flip when all the photons are on at once, but it took like that one mathematical equation and avalanching phenomenon happen in real avalanches. And I believe also in culture change. So you never know like when the next flip is going to be the thing that changes everything. Just make sure you're, you know, you're part of that chain of good. I want to touch on something about failure of relationships. Mm. You know, we you've cited a couple of, of things on, the divorce statistics or yes. relationships that don't work out. And, you know, if you have, like most people, been in failed relationships or marriages, then I want to really encourage you to not think of it as a failure, but mm-hmm. like as a learning path. And you did what you could, you did the best you could at that time. And that now you're taking a different approach, like to forgive yourself and to also remove any thoughts of you having a bad picker. Mm. You know, so you don't enter into this next round of being like, oh my God, I pick the wrong people all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, there, there's, I want people to shift their thinking as they enter into a process of dating to the place where they are conscious of becoming more discerning. They don't have to repeat the past and they can go in with like an open heart. And you have a couple of things in the book that are helpers, like phone a friend. Yeah. And other things like that that help you become a more discerning picker. So I've definitely had my share of uh, not so great unions uh, that I later came to regret, but we do the best we can with the tools at our disposal. So a big part of what I'm proposing is for people to get better tools. I'm providing you with a bunch of tools. And one of the best tools you can get is having a little security council of your own, basically a bunch of friends whom you trust, and they can see you a lot better than you can just because they're not you. And if they're genuinely interested in your well-being, then they'll know. And I've seen, I have a hundred percent accuracy rate in predicting terrible unions and, you know, nothing to be proud of, but just get to watch the train wreck unfold in slow motion. Uh, But the point is the person who's in it is convinced, no, no, this is a great idea. I'm going to marry this person and it's going to be awesome. 
So what you want to do is you want to pre-commit to listening to friends who have your best interest in mind. So I call this assembling your security council. So you ask some friends, hey, would you be willing to tell me the truth next time I'm in a relationship and and give me some much needed perspective and recruit these folks before you get into a relationship. And then when they tell you, believe them, because I can't think of any situation in which the friends were like, no, 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 this guy is awesome. You're wrong. They're saying the guy is awesome. And, and, you know, the guy turns out to be not a great fit, right? They're usually right. Multiple heads are better than one. Uh, There are some very good narcissists and sociopaths out there who can misrepresent themselves for a short period of time. But even so, somebody in your security council is going to notice. So call up these friends. Uh, You have my full permission to use this podcast and the book as an excuse to call them up, reconnect with them and say, hey, you know, I was wondering, would you be willing to do this unusual thing and offer to serve as their security council in return? Because people get stuck, right? And as the great psychologist Daniel Kahneman talks about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, there's this phenomenon of what you see is all there is. So people get stuck in relationships and what they see is what's in front of them, right? It's like, oh, I have this relationship, so oh, something's wrong with me. I should fix it or I should you know, try my best to salvage this as opposed to how about the two billion other people in the world who could potentially be a much better match then this loser you're stuck with, right? That's often not the thought that comes to people's minds. That's definitely not the thought that comes to my mind. Yes. Definitely not. There you I, go. I have I have blinders on. Yeah. And I, I talk about this friend of mine in the book and you know he's a very um, successful and gritty and persistent people. So he may never give up on this terrible union that he's in, even though the signs are very clear, like, you know, when somebody calls a SWAT team on you twice, it's time to reconsider, right? So you just have to sometimes take a step back and and you pre-commit to listening to this advisory board, this what I call your your security council. And that way, maybe, maybe there's, there's an outside chance for us to make better decisions. I mean, limerence, the whole falling in love thing is super powerful. I always say like me dispensing advice uh, when somebody is in limerence and in love, it's like throwing marshmallows at a tank. It's like, ah, take that, ah, take that tank. Oh, didn't work, I guess. Um, so what you want to do is you want to pre-commit and and maybe listen uh, to people who actually care for you and have better perspective. Last question. Well, maybe second to last. You really don't like social media very much. Oof. Oh boy. Uh, I mean, yeah. social media is bad. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and the apps, the apps are terrible. So yeah. Are, okay. Are, are we getting me started on this? Because <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, I just want to point out, you know, like in the in the book, there's a lot of things that talk about Facebook and TikTok, blah 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 blah, about not being healthy for you. Yeah. And since we are all still using them anyway as a communication platform, mm-hmm. most of us, particularly yeah. those of us who have anything media oriented, yeah. how do you do the platforms without them? Maybe maybe assuming you're not going to delete it. What's the right frame of mind? to use those kinds of platforms. Yeah. Well, well, deleting it would be the most powerful way because very quickly you realize, oh, I can live without this. And you get creative and you start living your life under different constraints and you get and then constraints compel creativity. So I highly recommend experimenting with the idea of deleting these, especially things like Instagram and TikTok, which are just uh, 
wrecking balls of mental health, especially for for young women. Just the, the they're these super pernicious comparison engines. And before you used to compare yourself to I don't know the fifteen or one hundred people in your class or your high school. Now it's the whole planet, the whole time with filters. Unfair advantage. That said, yeah. So Instagram, you should just delete. Um, I'm not. I don't see if it's your business outsource it to somebody else to run it for you. So you don't have to do it. Make sure you don't have any of these things on your phone. So that turns your phone into a crack dealer. And you generally don't want to be carrying your crack dealer in your pocket. Just one of those things on my phone. There is no email. There are no swipey. I mean, obviously I don't use the swipey dating apps at all. No Twitter. No, I don't have an Instagram account. Uh, anything that involves intermittent reinforcement that can make you want to go and just check it for the sake of checking that's going to feed into the addictive circuits of your brain. And now you are enslaved to a gizmo. And I don't want you to be enslaved to anything or anybody. I still have my Facebook account. It's been hard to get rid of. So what I did was I killed its feed. There's a widget you can get for your browser that basically, you know, it terminates your feed. And that way you can just use it to go in there, say happy birthday to your, you know, five or six friends who have a birthday that day and and then move on. And I don't see anything Mm -hmm. on there. And that way it's mostly under my control. Would I rather spend those 10, 15 minutes a day on something else? Actually reconnecting with friends for 10, 15 minutes a day, I find worthwhile. It's on my terms and and that works for me. Um, Twitter, of course, is a cesspool of of hate and, and, and lameness, but I follow interesting people only. And if they say something cool, then I get to read it. And if um, if they don't, then I don't see the other random stuff. So what I recommend is people pick up this book by Jaron Lanier. Uh, who was present mm-hmm. at one of your TEDx's, I believe, in TEDx San Francisco. And the book is called 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And up to that point, I was reluctant to delete the accounts. And I read that. I'm like, oh, wow, he's he's not wrong. He says, you know, basically it makes you, it's they're trying to steal your soul, uh, which I do not disagree with. So I would rather somebody not steal your soul. And, and look, there's a big world out there. And if you look up, you'll see that you are surrounded by, by wonder and on amazing things. And uh, the more, you know, we have our heads stuck in these tiny little screens, the less of the big world we get to see. So it's an opportunity cost. What do you want your epitaph to read? Made witty side comments on Insta or built something useful for the world that everybody benefited from, wrote a book, uh, developed a, a drug, who knows? Um, design a beautiful dress. So think about the opportunity cost and how else you could be spending your time. So here is the last question. Uh, Happiness engineering as a whole, in addition to writing these best-selling dating books and being a lifelong curious person, having your private practice, uh, you also host events in Los Angeles, I understand. You started some club there and you're also, which is another big piece of people being happy, right? Connected, communicating. And uh, I'd love for you to close with sort of a conversation around how you're finding your happiness now. This whole happiness engineering framework is much more holistic than just relationships, right? Happiness does not exist in a vacuum. It exists inside your mind, inside your body, inside your relationship. It's everywhere. So I'm teaching about happiness engineering, it's because we teach what we want to master. And this is the stuff that really matters to me. So I have this thing I call the five pillars of human thriving. So robust relationships, meaningful work, 
sound sleep, mental fitness, and physical fitness. And in retrospect, I look at what these are and I'm realizing, oh, wow, this is what's really informed my life up at this point. So I left McMisery and company because it was making me miserable. It's in the name already, right? And I felt like I was doing something that was not terribly productive for the for society, for the world, didn't involve really service, wasn't really uh, being the light to anybody. So I decided to move out and into personal development, self-help. It's much easier to see that this is potentially benefiting someone uh, than if I'm just shifting columns of numbers back and forth on a spreadsheet. Uh, robust relationships. So much of everybody's happiness has to do with that. So I, I chose to make it a priority. And I moved back to Los Angeles a few years ago when many of my friends had moved out or had kids and went to Planet Parenthood, couldn't see them anymore. And so I'm like, okay, I can mope about it. I can do something about it. So I started a whole social group uh, to have you know three to four meetings per week because that's how you make friends, by seeing each other repeatedly in casual context. And sleep. For most of my life, I had serious sleep issues I didn't even know. So I went and got a sleep study. And sleep is paramount. If you are not sleeping, everything falls apart. So endocrine system, cognition, muscle, mus uh, musculoskeletal system, everything depends on sleep. So you want to dial in your sleep. And I've designed a life such that I can sleep as much as necessary to recover and have a, a, a robust health. Mental fitness, that's a big, big part of it. And uh, I started meditating about 20 years ago. And I, and I say it's the most important thing that I do every day. Those 30 minutes of meditation, they basically reset my mind and put on a path to just seeing the world in a much more helpful way. And that makes all the difference. When you meditate, you're changing the substrate through which you are receiving the world, namely, namely your mind. And so people say, mm -hmm. oh, that person has rose-colored glasses. When you meditate, you get permanent rose-colored glasses. Things just don't bug you nearly as much, and you bounce back from stuff. So, uh, And then finally, uh, physical fitness. So exercise is the single thing that elevates your mood more quickly and more reliably than anything else in the world. So it's so good that pharmaceutical companies are trying to turn it into a pill. But you know what? You can just go out and move. You don't need the pill. And so I, I, I do around, uh, I do a one hour exercise class every day, I intensity interval training and whatever problem I had before the class, by the end of the class simply does not exist. You just change your mood, it change your cognitive, it changes everything. And, you know, if you do these five practices, you're just moving yourself a lot more towards being the kind of person who can fully give his or her gift to the world. And on top of that, you'll be healthy, you'll be happy, you'll be bouncing around, you're going to have energy. If you're sleeping well, if you have good relationships, if you have good friendships, if you're meditating every day, you're probably not going to get sick as much either. So um, I highly recommend developing your own happiness practice such that you're like designing, like engineering your life around this idea of happiness instead of responding to work requests or being at the mercy of the bad relationship that you're in or not having time enough to exercise. Make these an ironclad priority because, yo, here we are, one shot, uh, this precious incarnation. Let's get it right the first time. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I highly recommend this book, and we will put all of the links and all of the other things where you can find Dr. Victor. Well, I love talking to you, as usual. I think this book is a triumph. I loved it. I thought it was funny and easy to read. 
and I learned something. I think it also applies, by the way, to work and career as much as it does to dating. So thanks for that. Little did you know that I was asking some of those exact same questions on buying and selling oh. in the work world. I just really appreciate you. Really appreciate your mind and the way you synthesize things and the generosity of you taking the time to put it all together and synthesize it for the rest of us in a way that's useful. So I'll put all the stuff in the show notes and people can find you and invite you into their world to do the same good you've done for me. Are you inspired to live into your most authentic self, to know your true values, and then to find a relationship uh, based on true fit for the things that matter to you most? I believe it's possible for all of us. Well, if you would like to read the book, you can go out and purchase it at you know anywhere books are sold. Uh, we're also going to do a little giveaway. So if you come to my Instagram, the.rose.woman, and make a comment on the tile for this episode, on the post for this episode, you'll be automatically entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book. I'd like to close uh, with a poem today. Uh, this is a poem reminiscent of what I was talking about in the beginning, the Ramdas idea of the triangle. And it's by Robert Bly. It's called The Third Body. A man and a woman sit near each other, and they do not long at this moment to be older or younger, nor born in any other nation or time or place. They are content to be where they are, talking or not talking. Their breaths together feed someone whom we do not know. The man sees the way his fingers move. He sees her hands close around a book she hands to him. They obey a third body that they share in common. They have made a promise to love that body. Age may come, parting may come, death will come. A man and a woman sit near each other. As they breathe, they feed someone we do not know, someone we know of, whom we have never seen. Oh, so you want to take a big deep breath with me? We'll just breathe together. That third body, if you're in a relationship, that deserves your love and care, your loving attention. And if you're not actively related at this point in an intimate way, then give that love to your friends. Give it to yourself. Give it to the soil. Everybody's got to love somebody. Okay, you know the drill. If you like this episode, please share it with someone. And if you would be so kind, if you're liking the show, as to write a review and give it a good five-star hit on one of your favorite podcast platforms, I would be very grateful. The podcast is sponsored by Rosebud Woman. You can find intimate care and body care products without any comparables in the market at rosewoman.com and by Radiant Farms, makers of psychoactive gummies for your overall mental, spiritual, and physical health and well-being. Have a great day.